Hey, good morning, Christ Church. It's good to be with you, church family, here on Father's Day. It's wonderful to be together on Father's Day. And I hope, dads, I'm talking to you. I'm a dad, I'm talking to you, dads. I hope you get a moment today just to come up for air, maybe take that nap, have a little reprieve. Yes, connect with your children. It's important to have these moments where we have a little reprieve, especially in 2020, which has become this trifecta of fraughtness with this looming uh, uh, presidential election and the pandemic we've been going through and then racial issues, all of this has come together to make it quite a time indeed. In fact, I was looking through uh, social media and there's several memes that are up that just talk about how fraught 2020 is. There's one that I enjoy that you'll see right now. This time traveler comes and says, what year is it? Me, 2020. Time traveler, yikes. <laughs> um, You know, these memes, uh, they remind us that we are living in exceptional times. And they remind us that, uh, that there is a place maybe that we can look at this time, we'll look back at this time with perspective, a place in which we can realize that uh, there's not as much anxiety as we had maybe in 2020. And, and, and these are helpful because uh, there's something about that that we want to believe in. We want to believe that we will be able to be centered again, so to speak. Uh, but the question is, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do in the meantime? We've been doing a series called Centered in the Chaos. And this series has taken a look at this ancient book in the Bible called the Book of Psalms. And in this book, we see that this uh, book has been powerful. It's powerful to comfort people that are going through fraught times. In fact, if we look at the history Uh, of the world. In many ways, we can see that there's always been this thread of people that have turned to this book and found tremendous comfort uh, in this book. For instance, in 431, as North African Christians were waiting in the city of Hippo under the siege of the Vandal King Genseric, they turned to the book of Psalms in order to be centered in the midst of this frightening, terrifying situation. Or in 1347, when in Messina, Sicily, a boat, uh, actually 12 boats uh, docked there. And, and they were filled with people that were dead and the, the survivors had these black sores. Uh, that was the beginning of what became known as the Black Death, that then spread throughout Europe. And as it spread throughout Europe, it just unraveled society. Over 20 million people died. But wherever it went, we found Christians turned to the book of Psalms in order to find help, in order to find comfort, in order to be centered in the face of this pandemic. And then on April 9th, 1944, as Nazi resistance uh, leader Dietrich Bonhoeffer was led to his execution, a man who had, who had prayed the Psalms his whole life. Every day he would pray through the book of Psalms. He wrote a book on the, uh, wrote a book, on the book of Psalms. Uh, as he was led to his death, his last words were this, this might be the end, but for me, it is the beginning of my life. You see, Christians have turned to the book of Psalms over and over during fraught times, and there they have found a way to be centered. And we could actually look at the whole history of the Christian church in terms of how the book of Psalms has centered Christians around the globe in Asia and Africa and the Middle East and throughout the centuries. Now, this is not to say that there aren't other ways that we might center ourselves. You know, there's many ways in which we attempt to center ourselves uh, when we're going through difficult times. And not everybody's a Christian. People turn to all kinds of things. Uh, maybe you are somebody that believes that there is no overarching meta-narrative. There's no real meaning that life is a series of just random events. Maybe we're just time and, and, and atoms in motion. Maybe that's your view. 
And then maybe during this time, you might turn to uh, some way of kind of escaping through uh, some kind of late modern stoicism. Voltaire says, each must cultivate his own garden. So maybe you uh, simply uh, remove yourself from the world and escape. Or maybe in some kind of late modern Epicureanism, you distract yourself with several things. Or maybe if you believe that life is some kind of monastic, uh, sorry, monistic reality in which suffering and, and injustice are just an illusion, maybe you might follow a prescription I found on one website. Start each day rejecting the narratives of pandemic and injustice and rather visualize world peace. Visualize yourself happy, safe, and loved while reciting over and over, everything always works out. Everything always works out. Everything always works out. Now, what this shows is that people are going to look for ways to get through. And when we look for ways to get through difficult times, we inadvertently reveal what we believe is most true about the world. So we can be like that time traveler. We can actually ground ourselves in something that's more real than the fraughtness of our current time. And here's where the Bible's unique because the Bible says something totally unique. It says, we're not a bunch of swirling atoms. We are not just part of some kind of uh, impersonal divine life force that we need to kind of tap into. The Bible says that at the center of the universe, I mean, this is very shocking, at the center of the universe, the thing that is most true about us, and the thing that's most true about us and the most true about who, who, uh, what is most real is that God is Father and we are made to relate to God as such. This is a striking claim. And in fact, we saw that in the text this morning in Psalm 103, 13, it states, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. As a father, so the Lord. And so this is an incredible theme in the Bible. And I know, because I'm a preacher, preachers love to say today's text is the most important text and this theme is the most important theme. But I have to say, I'm convinced in the whole scope of Christianity and all the various ideas in the Bible, I would say the idea that God is Father is one of the top two or three most important ideas. It is so central. And so this morning, I want us to look at this idea of God as Father. Here on, here on Father's Day, I know, but really, this is such a central idea, and I want to look at it. And here's just two, two basic movements this morning. Number one, what does the Bible mean when it claims that we can know God as Father? What does it mean that God is Father? How does the Bible speak of God as Father? And then the second thing is, how does this truth, entering into this, leaning into this, how does this transform us? How does it give us a peace and a stability? How does it keep us centered? How does it give us a certain equanimity, a certain kind of resilience in the face of fraught times? Well, there are three ways that Father is spoken of in the Bible. And the first one is something, and you, I mean, you can think of this yourself, but the first one is really uh, something that we all know, which is fathers are a source. They're a source. Uh, they're, a father is a progenitor. A father is the person that provides for your biological and physical existence. The father provides a sperm for an egg. The fathers are a physical source. And so the word father can be understood as having a certain relationship to God as the one who made us the source from which we come. And this is actually the most common way in which people, I think, outside of the church, outside of Christianity, speak of God as Father. They speak of God as, as, as the source, and they speak of people as all of God's children. We're all part of God. We're all God's children. But the Bible actually doesn't use this sense very often. There are a few places, like Acts 17, 
where Paul says, God made the world and everything in it. In him, we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, being then God's offspring. So Paul here is saying that by virtue of being created by God, we are all God's children. But like I said, although this is a common way of speaking, this is actually a very rare way of um, actually registering what it means that God is our father, that we are, he is the source from which we come. Another common way that we uh, think of it is in terms of resemblance. A father is somebody who you resemble. And all our genetic code comes from our parents. And Jesus himself says that uh, if you have seen me, you've seen the father. That's John 14, nine. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. So Jesus says, I am the perfect reflection of God the father. I resemble the father perfectly. So there's God, the Father means God is our source. God, the Father means God is who we resemble. Uh, Now, if God, the Father is used in terms of source, then everyone is a son or daughter of God. And if God, the Father is used as resemblance, then only Jesus is truly the son of God. But neither of these are the most common and pronounced way in which the Bible speaks about God as Father. And it's this third sense in which the Bible uses the term Father that I wanna focus in on this morning. It's a sense that I want to hone in on. And this third sense is best understood through the analogy of adoption. What happens when a child is adopted? When a child is adopted, here's a child who is not biologically connected to the father, may not look at all like the father, and yet that that person takes that child and welcomes them into their home and says, you are now my family. I am making a deep binding commitment to you. I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to nurture you and love and care and support you, provide for you. I'm going to be in your life. I am going to be a rock. I'm going to be an oak. I'm going to be present throughout your life. I'm going to be this abiding, constant source of security and provision. And we can see the difference between this idea of God as just source and this idea of God as the father who adopts. When you think about so many films and sadly, some of our lives where a father who has abandoned and or left his children when they were young comes back into their life later when they're adults. And then typically you have a conversation like this. The the father comes back and the child says, you're not really my dad. And the father says, well, what do you mean? I'm your own flesh and blood. And the child says, you're not, you're not my dad. You weren't there for me when I needed you. Where were you when I was doing this or that or when I went through this? Where were you? See, what the child is saying at that time is a father is so much more than just simply a biological source. A real father is someone who is there for you in and through the stages and seasons of life. A real father, and this is the sense which scripture really accents, has a special relationship. There's a certain kind of unique relationship, a relationship that the Bible calls a covenant. Relationship calls a covenant. And this is what Psalm 103, 13 is talking about. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And the phrase, those who fear him, is is code for those who have a covenant, those who are part of the people of God, those who live in wonder and awe at this Father's mercy and grace. In fact, we see that again in Psalm 103, 17 to 18. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his commandments. 
So fearing and having a covenant and having commandments, those are all wrapped up together. This is the kind of relationship that it's talking about when it talks about God as our father. It's, it's referencing when Abraham, when God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to have a special relationship with you. I'm going to have a special relationship with you and your descendants. I will be your God and you will be my people. It's kind of like an adoption ceremony. I'm going to be your father. We will be your parents. You will be our child. And of course, coming with that is there's certain guidelines we're gonna give. There's certain structure that we want. There's certain things we're gonna aspire and things we're gonna, we're gonna guide you towards. Why? Because we care for you. All good parents have commands. They have, they have normative, regulative principles by which they're trying to get their children to live so that their children live life well. And so this is a unique kind of relationship. It's a covenant relationship. And the unique thing about this is that it's different than other relationships. You know, if you are in a relationship with a boss and you start showing up late for work, he can say, I'm no longer your boss. You no longer work here. See you later. Have a nice life, right? But if you are in a relationship with a parent and you start messing up, you know what happens if, that is a, if that's a good parent? They get more intense, the relationship, they get more focused. They don't pull apart and disappear and just send you on your way. They get more direct. They get more involved. They get more, why they're invested because you are now family. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a special, deep covenant relationship. And I want you to notice something here. When the Bible talks about God being our father, it's not merely, again, as God is just simply the source and therefore God's all of our father in some kind of nebulous way. No, it's something that can happen in your life where you can go from not knowing God as your father to, be, to God becoming your father. John 1.12 says, as many as received him, that is Jesus, as believed on his name, they received power to become the children of God. They become the children of God. Another place in, in John, Jesus says, you need to be born again. In other words, it's not enough to be born the first time. If you really want to know God as your father, you need to have a second birth. In a certain sense, you need to come a, become a part of a whole new family, right? You need to enter back into the world in a new way in which God is your father. So this involves a, a close relationship with God, where God is your guide and your companion, where God loves you and tenderly cares for you, and God is intimate. It's much more than God being the source, God being some nebulous life force, uh, and, and when you enter into this relationship, something unique happens. See, this is a relationship, as Psalm 103 says, it's marked by compassion as a father shows compassion to his children. It's a relationship marked by compassion. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Now, I wanna, I wanna pay attention to something here. At first sight, it looks like it's saying that God will show compassion on you uh, if you fear him. But again, I want to accent that that, that is just simply um, shorthand for if you have a covenant relationship with him. See, there's a parallel here. Uh, God, show, God, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. The point is, is that if you are part of this covenant relationship, God has a deep emotional and visceral and invested connection and intention towards you. And this word compassion is really interesting. The word compassion is actually the root is where we get the word womb from. 
And so it's this idea of this deep kind of visceral, instinctual, uh, protective, strong bond. You know, when you have a child, uh, you, you play with that child. You're constantly, there's a lot of skin-to-skin contact. And after a while, that child, it, you're attached to that child. And that's what this word is communicating, that God has a deep compassion. And it draws from this word womb. Uh, again, when Josh preached on Mother's Day, he, he drew this out, that the Bible sometimes ascribes motherly qualities to God, um, which, it, which is helpful because people sometimes say, well, you know, is the Bible sexist? Why is God typically father? Um, and, and just so you know, the reason why the Bible typically uses the word father is because in the ancient Near East, people, people thought of God, they thought of powers that were part of creation. They thought of powers that you would harness and by using the word father, it distances us from God, but keeps that close bond and connection. So um, God is neither a man nor a woman, uh, but these are analogies that the Bible uses to help us understand our relationship with God. In verse 13 and 14, it adds, he knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. So there's this word of compassion, this compassion, which is rooted in the word womb. He knows our frame, that we are dust. And that is referencing back to Genesis when God created the world and God formed man and woman out of the dust, right? And so he remembers that we're dust. And so there's this image that God knows us intimately. God knows the details of who we are. God knows us because God created us. God has been with us from the beginning. God knows everything about us. Psalm 139, 13, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. This is quite interesting. You know, God knows us so well. When a child is born, when a child is born, the father takes the child and inspects the child. I was the, the third child born in my family, and I have two older sisters, and my dad loves my sisters, but he really wanted a son. And, uh, and I told, I was there, but I don't remember. I'm told when I was born that the first thing my, my mom said, uh, the doctor said, it's a boy. And my dad said, no, really? And he, he, as soon as he could, he snatched me and he just checked me out, inspected me to make sure I was a boy. And then with great joy, he's like, this is my son. This is my son. And, uh, you know, he was looking at me, how, you know, does he have my nose, mother's nose, the whole bit. He knew me intimately. He knew me personally. And the thing that's amazing is those of you who are parents know this. Uh, you know, you can, you can enter into a relationship where you start dating somebody and then over the course of months and, and, and maybe even longer for some people, you develop this deep attachment and bond. Eventually you get married, you know, you, you, you have children. You know, 10 years later, you turn next to the person, I just really love you. But what happens when you have a kid is you're sitting there one day and the next minute, this, this thing appears and you think, I will die for you. <laughs> Instantaneously, amazing. What happens? Your heart latches onto that child and you become committed to that child. And the Bible's telling us that God, for those who have God as their father, that is the deep kind of commitment, that kind of, that kind of deep attachment, that investment, that desire to see the flourishing of that child. That is how God feels towards those of us who are his children. He inspects us. He knows us. He knows our details. God knows your nose. If, if, God, if, if you are a Christian, you know, I just remind you, God knows your Enneagram type. 
You know, God knows all of your weird idiosyncrasies. Every father knows their child's, a good father knows their child's idiosyncrasies, their weaknesses, their strengths and their weaknesses, right? God knows those things. So this kind of fatherly compassion uh, is what drives God's heart towards us. And it results in a gracious forgiveness. Look at verse three, who forgives all our iniquity. Look at verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Look at verse 12, as far as the East is from the West, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You know, a good father uh, without batting an eye regularly cleans their child. When their child comes, when they're, when they're young and they've soiled themselves and they're crying and they're a mess, the father doesn't shame the child. The father doesn't, doesn't, doesn't uh, say, what, what, you've done this again? The father lovingly takes care of that mess, cleans that child. And the father, our heavenly father, in light of the finished work of Jesus, cleans us up as an act of gracious compassion that he has for us. This gracious compassion uh, also moves forward in the way that this father disciplines us. Look at verse eight. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Verse nine, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Now, maybe you say, wait a second here. I, I liked the sermon until this point. I believe in a God of love. What does this mean that God's angry? This is the God of anger. No, no, I have a God of love. Well, if you're thinking that, don't you understand how love works? I just wanna challenge that. You know, every good marriage counselor knows that the day a marriage is over is the day when the fighting stops. When people become so indifferent that they, they no longer have something that they want to fight for. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Bible puts anger and love together because the opposite of anger, uh, I'm sorry, the opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is indifference. In fact, the reality is if you love something, if something threatens that, you will be angry. And so you cannot love something without also being susceptible to anger because anger is the natural response when something you love is threatened. And when something threatens us, you know, when God sees us going down a path or God sees us doing something that he knows, just like with our own children, can be destructive, something rises up within him. E.H. Gifford says, the more a father loves his son, the more he hates his son, the drunk, his son, the liar, his son, the traitor. You cannot be a loving parent and sit by indifferent while that child gets involved in something that will threaten it. But notice that this love that God has is matched with an anger that is slow. This is not God flies off at the handle. You know, I mean, maybe you've seen a parent or maybe you've been a parent. I know I have been in my life at times where you are quick to anger. You just simply react. You're being rash. You know, you've made my life hard. I'm gonna make your life hard. Uh, payback anger, right? That's what we can slip into as parents. And payback anger never works. And so what the Bible's communicating here is that God does not respond with payback anger. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. God also doesn't sit there with grudges. God's anger is always a compassion-driven anger. It's slow, it's under control, it's deliberate, it's intentional. I remember uh, as a parent one time when my daughter was young, um, uh, she did something wrong and I, 
And I just knew that I, sh I, I need to let her know I don't like that. And it was like an Academy Award performance. I, I actually kind of faked like I was really angry just because I wanted her to know I didn't like that. But I, you know, and, and uh, but there was something about that moment where I was able to kind of stand outside and, and yet be in that moment being angry. And I think that kind of, that kind of communicates this, God is very intentional and purposeful in his anger and it's for our best um, to discipline us so that we might not fall into something that can destroy us. And then finally, uh, it's not only a gracious forgiveness that comes out of this compassion and a measure discipline, but it also results in this welcomed access. Uh, I want us to see something here. You know, at the end of the Psalm, verse 19, it says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. And then it goes into all those different things. There's all these angels and all the different rulers. God is the king of kings and God has dominion over the earth. That little, that little section, I mean, I made us read the whole Psalm for that, right? You heard the whole thing. Because at the end there, we are reminded that this being who is our father is also the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This being who's our father is also the brightest and most brilliant mind beyond our imagination, the most brilliant, dazzling moral holiness beyond our imagination, the most powerful beyond our imagination being in the whole universe. And these two things uh, come together and it's hard for us. Um, so when Jesus says, when you pray, pray our father, Jesus is not saying, forget that God has all these attributes. When we say our Father who is in heaven, it's not that God no longer has these attributes. It means that we filter our relationship with God primarily through his, the fact that he is a father. We understand those attributes in terms of him fundamentally being a father for us. Now, if you want to meet a prime minister or a president or a king, you have to have a reason you can't just go marching in. You can't just uh, you know, go running right up to the president or the prime minister. You'll get shot, <laughs> okay? You can't do it. But there is one person that can just run right up and actually jump on the lap of that, that important person, and that is a child. And just nuzzle in and say, daddy. And of course, when that happens, of course, he, this person is still the prime minister or the king um, or the president. But for that child, that's their daddy. And Jesus has the audacity to say that when we pray, we are to approach the sovereign creator who spun the world into existence. We are to approach the greatest mind imaginable, the most dazzling holiness uh, ever witnessed, absolute goodness through this father lens. He is omnipotent, but his omnipotence is gentled for us. He is unfathomably brilliant, and yet this father speaks at our level. He has a holiness that is beyond imagination. No one could stand in the presence of such holiness, and yet that holiness is filtered into a sheer love for us. So how does this transform us? Well, I'm kind of getting there, aren't I? <laughs> uh, there's several things. Number one, we talked about uh, destructive parents, and there's two kinds of destructive parents. There's the neglectful parent, that just lets the child do whatever they want to do, right? And then there's the, the, the parent that's overly controlling, that's constantly responding with uh, uh, kind of payback anger. And, uh, and both of these parents end up um, leaving the child wondering if they're actually loved. 
both of these kind of parents uh, end up making the child wonder um, if there's any kind of security. And, and children that have parents that are neglectful or payback, they end up being anxious. They spend their time anxious. They lay awake at night. There's something not settled within the child. I'm not a psychologist, but I can tell you that, that, uh, that this is the truth. I mean, we all know this. Children experience this. There's an unsettledness that happens, you know. Uh, and so when parents don't have the child's best interest in mind, uh, uh, the child begins kind of becoming a little bit unglued. Um, and yet, at the same time, um, there's something that happens when a child knows that this person who is so much smarter and stronger and, and absolutely different than mine, that, that this person has my best interest in mind, this person loves me even when I don't love myself, that this person, uh, you know, left to myself, I'd be eating Twinkies on the highway, you know, and that this person loves me and won't allow me to eat Twinkies on the highway. When, the ch- when that settles into the child, the child comes into a place of rest. The child comes to a place of security. The child feels a deep sense of peace. The child knows it's going to be okay. The child can go to sleep at night. They don't understand everything that's going on in the world. They don't know what's going on, but they know that their father is there and their father protects and the father guides, the father loves and the father has their best interests in mind. And it creates a centeredness in the child. That creates a certain kind of stability in the child that allows the child just to relax and know it's going to be okay. My father knows. My father cares. My father loves me. This is the kind of love that transforms us, that creates a certain kind of peace, even in fraught situations. So it transforms us by, it gives us a peace. It gives us a deep kind of psychological security. But there's something else that also happens. Verse 15 and 16 says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind blows over it, it is gone, and its place remembers him no more. And this line, remembers him no more, it's haunting. I know somebody that um, uh, is up in uh, Northern California and witness the whole campfire up there in Paradise, California, uh, one of the greatest disasters that ever happened, an entire city completely burned out. And this person told me different stories of how people responded to seeing their homes just devastated. You know, you can go, you can go on to, and especially after now that it's rained and there's been some grass that's grown, you can go and you see these streets and just block after block where there's just nothing, where there used to be neighbor, neighborhoods. And a lot of people can't even go back. Some people grab their stuff and they fled paradise and they can't go back after that fire because they cannot bear the thought that their home remembers them no more. That all the things they did to make that a place where they fit are no longer there. Because that's what home is. Home is a place where it fits you. You know, every other place when you're not at home, you know, you fit in. But when you're at home, everything is where you want it. Your chair is where you want it. You've got your house the way you want it. You've got everything arranged the way you want it. It's a place, it fits you. You belong there. And some of us might feel in the midst of this fraught period that we don't belong. We don't know if our home's gonna be there. And I have a word of comfort for you this morning. Look what it says. 
It says that though we might live in a situation where our home is no more, we have another source, another home from everlasting to everlasting. The Lord's love is with those who fear him. Do you see what it's saying? It's saying that when you know God as your father, you have a built-in home. That no matter how much change and how, no matter how fraught the world becomes, you take home with you because you have that relationship with God as your father. And some of you who have moved, you've, you've had this experience before where you just packed up and you left everything. But because you had a close family member, you're like, it's okay, I'm, it's, I'm gonna be okay. But when we have God as our father, we have that at all times. Even if we lose a family member, we have that security. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. And when you know that love of God as your father, not only do you have this giant list, I mean, Psalm 103, the reason I chose this, I mean, it's just this giant wish list, right? Of all these things that our father has for us, forgiving our sins, so gracious, so merciful, providing a sense of security. You have all that, but you have a deep sense of home. You feel secure. You can be secure. So I want to ask you this morning, if you are a Christian, and when you hear that God is your father, does that evoke a wonderment? Does that evoke a sense of awe? Does that evoke a sense of excitement? Are you astounded? Are you electrified that God is my father? The being who created the world loves me and has that kind of determined, loving, compassionate, gracious desire to bless me and see me flourish. If that's not the case, look at the beginning of the psalm. What does the psalmist say? Oh, my soul, forget none of his benefits. Who, who is the psalmist talking to? It's not talking to God. It's not talking to us. He's talking to his soul. And sometimes we have to stop and say, do you realize what you have? Cavolo, do you realize what you have? Do you realize how immeasurable and precious and amazing and astounding it is that God is your father? That the being who spun the world into space, sung the world into space, put the stars in the sky, that that being is your father and loves you. It's gonna be okay. But maybe, maybe you just came in this morning or you listened to this this morning and your definition has only been that first one. Well, I guess God's my father because he created everybody and you know. And you don't know God as your father in the sense of covenant, family, the sense of the one who loves you, who died for you, who, who, who has set his sights on you. And you need to become a child of God. And if that's you this morning, I wanna let you know that you can do that. You can do that today. You can turn to God and you can say, I want to be in a covenant relationship with you. Take me as your child. Take me as your daughter. Take me as your son. Be my true father. I wanna walk with you. I wanna be known by you. I need you in my life. And he will, he will take you. He will adopt you. All those who call out to him and genuinely ask, Lord, I want to be your child. He will take you in and he'll make you one of his own. Galatians 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is why Jesus came. 
Jesus came so that you can know God as your father, so that you could be adopted into God's family. Jesus went to the cross in order to deal with our sin so the father could wrap his arms around you and embrace you as one of his own. And you know, when you follow the trajectory of Jesus' life, Jesus always refers to God as his father, except for one time. There's only one time we know, and that's when Jesus was suffering on the cross and he cried out, Lama, Lama, um, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, which just simply means, my God, my God. He doesn't use the language father. Why is that? It's because in order to invite us into the family, he had to be rejected as a son. You see, Jesus took our sins. Our sins fell into his heart in deep heaviness and his rejection meant our acceptance. And he has paved the way today for you to reach out to him and say, God, I want you as my father. Jesus has paid for it all. He's made the way free to be adopted, to know you as my father and to live a life in which you are my true hope, my true home, my true security, the one who is my provider, my protector. Don't you want that? I want that. I want that for you. Please join me in prayer. Lord, sometimes we open the Bible and the truths are too big for us. Our imagination is too small. And, and that you could be our father is so big. And we ask that you would awaken our soul. Lord, open our souls, open our minds, open our imaginations that we might be able to comprehend the profundity that you are our father. And may we rest in that. May we grow in that. And if there's anybody here today, Lord, that's listening to this, that doesn't know you as father, I invite them just to turn to you at this time and to welcome you into their life, even as we sing that you are a good, good father. May that be their cry to you. May that be their, their, their calling out to you. Adopt me into your family. I want you to be my father. I want to be your true child. We pray in the name of the one who has made it possible for us to be adopted into your family, in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.